right. We got one extra. There we go. Which is, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, FLAW versus HFPA. And Mr. Kinto, did I get your client's name correct? Yes, Your Honor, you did. Okay, very well. Um, you may proceed. Good morning, and may it please the court. I'm David Quinto of One LLP, representing appellants Sashti Flaw and Rosa Gamasa. I wish to reserve two minutes for rebuttal. The complaint and amended complaint herein set forth in great detail a course of conduct by Appali Hollywood Foreign Press Association, venal in every respect. Although the HFPA, as a tax-exempt mutual benefit corporation, is required by law to benefit all foreign entertainment reporters equally, it manifestly does not do so. Instead, it enables its members to capitalize on their vastly superior access to Hollywood's newsmakers to the detriment of all competitors and to the detriment of all foreign consumers of Hollywood news. The HFPA does so by capitalizing on the fact that Hollywood's motion picture studios allocate access to talent to achieve two objectives. First, the studios want to drive up their profits from domestic American consumption of uh, their movies. They achieve that by inviting domestic American entertainment reporters to interview the talent and attend press junkets. Um, however, that objective necessarily excludes entertainment reporters for foreign outlets. Their second objective is they want to better compete for Oscar awards because winning the Academy Awards further enhances their prestige and profits. Because Hollywood Studios view winning Globes Awards as critical to winning Oscars, the HFPA's members are given unparalleled access to talent while competing foreign entertainment reporters have almost none. That would not matter if all qualified foreign entertainment reporters were free to join the HFPA, but they are not. Instead, the HFPA is organized and operated to protect its members from ever having to compete, either with one another or with excluded journalists. It divides the world into market territories for its members to exploit. As a rule, it permits only one member to report in any territory. It makes exceptions to its one reporter per territory only when more reporters may serve a territory without competing. That can occur when they are husband and wife, when they report in different languages, or when they report using different channels, such as television versus print media. So, Mr. Kinto, if, if you... If your client were a Norwegian newspaper, um, I, I would understand that part of your claim a little bit better because uh, what you've described sounds like a, you know, a horizontal agreement to divide up territories um, and you know, to the detriment of competition. And so, uh, you know, the, the the consumers in the relevant market are you know the media outlets uh, for whom you know finding journalists to cover Hollywood is, is now more expensive 
arguably because of this division but how is your your actual client a you know a a, a competitor journalist uh, how is she harmed by the market division uh, policies that you're complaining about well first let me just correct your honor that it would not become more expensive for rival publications in Norway to find quarters. Uh, it simply becomes impossible for them to do so. Uh, my client is harmed in that when the HFPA decides among itself that it is going to divide the world into markets, then each of the HFPA members uh, has a vested interest in protecting its exclusive, uh, that member's exclusive market, and the HFPA members then act, collude with one another to prevent one another's market shares. It's an I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back situation. Um, if a Japanese member does not want to face competition in Japan um, and a Norwegian member does not want to face competition in Norway, they agree with one another that one will not support a new Norwegian uh, applicant and the other will not support a new Japanese applicant. Uh, so that market division directly uh, harms uh, applicants at, uh, excluded members such as uh, Sashki But Council, if I could just jump in, it seems to me that any group that has uh, a limited membership is going to present this problem to some degree. Like, for example, in Los Angeles, there's something called the Magic Castle. And the Magic Castle is a guild of magicians, and they have performances during the week. And uh, if I wanted to go to the Magic Castle, I could not. I am not a member of the Magic Castle, and I can only attend if a member invites me. Now, I could say, I want to cover the world of magicians. I want to be writing for Magician Magazine. And therefore, I can't because I'm not a member of the Magic Castle. And therefore, the market I can share access is excluded. I could cite country clubs. I could cite business clubs, fraternities, sororities. There's always going to be someone on the inside who has advantage of someone who's not. So how is what you're asking us to do in this case, how does it not just you know, kind of fundamentally change clubs and memberships that, that don't allow everyone in? Well, this does not, this affects only a minority of clubs, uh, first and foremost. Uh, it affects only clubs, um, membership in which is uh, a practical necessity uh, for earning uh, a decent living at one's profession. So it does not involve um, local uh, clubs that might serve any other number of purposes. It does not affect uh, the Thursday night poker game. It does not affect um, any club that might get together to play uh, football or soccer on the weekends. It affects only those membership in which is important to the ability to practice one's chosen lawful livelihood. But why isn't, I mean, uh, following up on the, the point Judge Owens made, I mean, um, 
it seems like your your argument there is running into uh, Northwest wholesaler stationers, right? Because there you have a cooperative activity, you know, the group of people in the same industry get together and uh, have a uh, you know, purchasing cooperative, which presumably gives them you know, lower cost inputs than their competitors. Um, but they, they don't have to let everyone in. Uh, and excluding people uh, from from their uh, cooperative is not per se unlawful. And that, and that, that sounds sort of similar here, like a group of people have gotten together uh, and as a result they have better access to inputs in the form of you know, being able to interview Hollywood talent, but uh, that doesn't make it per se unlawful. So, so how how is this different? It uh, strikes me, Your Honor, that the better analogy might be to College Net, the common application, a case in which at least two members of this morning's panel are very familiar. Um, this court found that when an arrangement between a college application service and colleges limited choice for college students, decreased the scope of service uh, and price competition to student applicants, and foreclosed rivals from entry to the market. Uh, it reduced overall market satisfaction by leaving one dominant provider offering inferior products and services. Um, the court found that antitrust claims were properly alleged. The analogy here is uh, fitting because you have the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which uh, effectively prohibits uh, other foreign entertainment reporters from competing with them. And by dividing markets among themselves, uh, they offer very limited selection to uh, foreign media outlets reporting on Hollywood news. Uh, leading to inferior services um, and to uh, inferior protection for foreign consumers who uh, are now limited to receiving news from uh, media outlets for which the Hollywood Foreign Press members report. So if I could jump um, in, Council, real quick. So the White House Press Corps. Not everyone's allowed to go to the White House. Not everyone's a member of that. Not, not anyone can just sit in that briefing room. Uh, I think a lot of people probably would want to be in there to ask the president questions. Uh, does that face the same problem as this case? Well, I don't think so, uh, Your Honor. Uh, it's not Oregon, the White House press room. Uh, press corps. Is the press corps, press which, corps. Which, is, which is kind of an exclusive group of reporters. They get access to the White House. And they they yes, even have right, an awards yeah. dinner every year. I've, I've heard about it. In my understanding, Your Honor, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the White House press corps consists of the group of uh, reporters who are uh, permitted by the White House to uh, come to the White House to gather news. Well, Mr. Uh, Quito, then, I mean, my understanding in this case is that the talent that your clients want to have access to, that the control over that talent is not being exerted by Hollywood Foreign Press Association, it's being exerted by the studios. Um, in the same way, I suppose, that the White House is determining who's going to get in and be available for White House press conferences. Um, I would disagree with that. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Well, but, but so... Um, 
and one doesn't need to look for, far on the internet, and I certainly didn't spend a lot of time doing this yesterday, but one of your clients, I mean, Ms. Flaw, uh, obviously has had access to Hollywood talent because you can see she interviewed Leonardo DiCaprio, Johnny Depp. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Obviously, she had some access. But here's, here's my question, as, as I think it relates to the legal issue. Do you have any evidence that there's any sort of coercion or agreement between the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and the studios? We allege in the complaint, Your Honor, that there have been instances in which the Hollywood Foreign Press Association complained to the studios that uh, non-member competitors had been invited to attend press junkets uh, and pressured the studios to uninvite, disinvite, whatever the word is, uh, those competitors from the press junkets. So the HFPA has been able to use uh, its collective power to force or uh, cajole studios into cooperating with them uh, and excluding their competitors from uh, professional opportunities. But I think what the HFPA really represents is an essential facility for competing uh, to collect and disseminate news. And I would also say um, that the fact that someone is sometimes able to get interviews of important motion picture personalities uh, does not mean that, the, that that person either uh, has the ability to interview them in respect to breaking stories such as the new release of uh, the release of the new motion picture uh, and it does not mean that the person has not been injured, uh, even severely injured, in her ability to practice her profession. Um, and if I may, I would like to reserve time for sure. rebuttal. We'll, we'll give you a minute. Thank you. You may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> Samir Degasen uh, for the defendant HFPA. I think the questions so far really underscore just how broad the theories that we're hearing from plaintiffs are. Plaintiffs are successful foreign journalists who think that their careers are going to be furthered by HFPA membership because they'll get to vote on the Golden Globes and therefore get more access to Hollywood stars. The fact that they want that competitive advantage is not a basis for a Sherman Act claim and plaintiffs identify no case where the ordinary membership decisions of a private organization like this have ever been held to be a per se violation of the antitrust laws. That alone, I think, is enough to eliminate the per se claims from this case, because as the Supreme Court has said, the per se analysis is reserved only for things that are so plainly anti-competitive that no elaborate study of the industry is required. And I'd like to sort of start with the market division policy that Judge Owens uh, described because I think there are three fundamental problems with that. The, f the first is, uh, I think Judge Miller's question uh, uh, underscored it. It's sort of a fundamental threshold 
problem, which is that the injury, injury that plaintiffs are alleging here does not flow from the alleged anti-competitive aspect of that policy. And that's a threshold requirement. As this court has said, injuries must flow from that which makes the conduct unlawful. The allegation there is that the dividing up of the markets makes the conduct unlawful. But the injury that's being alleged here is that plaintiffs don't get access to Golden Globes voting and so get less access to Hollywood stars. That has nothing to do with the market division policy. If the market division, the alleged market division policy didn't exist, it would have no effect on plaintiffs whatsoever. To the contrary, really what plaintiffs are saying is they want membership of the club so they can actually exploit the market division policy themselves. And so that makes this case much more like Brunswick, where there's just a fundamental mismatch between the injury that's being alleged and the alleged anti-competitive conduct. But I think there are also two other problems with that. Firstly, you know, you know, regardless of that, of that threshold problem, firstly, uh, you know, they just don't really factually allege any actual market division. There's sort of a general allegation of an affiliation between members and countries, but there's no bylaw, there's no rule that divides up markets in that way. And it's perfectly normal for people who practice in certain regions to be typically affiliated with those regions. They have an allegation that there's a grievance procedure uh, when there's, uh, when, when, different members of the association are trying to write for the same publication. That just sounds like an ordinary rule to minimize conflict and disruption between members. It's very far afield from a horizontal market division of the kind the Supreme Court described in Topco and Palmer. And the fact that uh, this doesn't look like a traditional horizontal market division is enough to take it outside of the per se uh, analysis. You know, as, as this court said in Sami Corp, when the conduct at issue is not a garden variety horizontal division of a market, we have issued a per se rule. So the fact that they don't really have any bylaw that it divides the market in the way that the classic cases do means this is no longer a per se case. Well, and why, I think thirdly, there's sort of a legal problem here because uh, the, the allegations here don't allege any actual horizontal competition between uh, members of the HFPA and they don't allege market power. And those are threshold things that you need to show um, a horizontal market division theory. It's not just you know, if the four of us were to get together and try to divide up a market, that wouldn't be an antitrust problem, of course, because we're not horizontal competitors and we don't have market power. And here there are really no allegations that the current members of the HFPA are horizontal competitors. They're all alleged to, by default, be in different markets because of their uh, language differences, their cultural differences and things of that nature. And I, and, as I'm, and, and I think very clearly there's no allegations whatsoever of market power. So all of that means, I think, that the market division policy is off the table. Can I can that I ask you though? Uh, I have, I have, before you move on, I have, I have a couple questions on the market division policy. It is starting with the, uh, I guess it's bylaw four point twelve uh, about the that you can file a grievance if you know somebody else is trying to write for the same uh, newspaper that you're writing for. Uh, why isn't that on its face a, an agreement among competitor or potential competitors to restrict competition? Um, that like you know, if, if I have this uh, this customer, this newspaper, um, you can't move in on my territory. What can you say more about why you think that's permissible? Well, I, I don't think it's a geographic market division of the kind that you had in in Topco and in Palmer, where you had horizontal competitors essentially saying you're going to take this part of the market, you're going to take this region, I'm going to take this region. And so it looks very different to that. It looks much more, I think, like a rule, a grievance procedure, essentially, that tries to minimize conflict. It's not even clear that you wouldn't be allowed to write for the same publication. You're just allowed to file a grievance. And I think that just makes it look like a procedure whereby the organization uh, wants to sort of harmonize uh, 
potential discord among its members. And of course, lots of organizational rules have something like that. But at a minimum, it just doesn't look like the classic horizontal market division like in Palma and Topco. And that's enough to take it outside of the per se analysis. And of course, there's sort of the separate threshold problem of, you know, this is just not the, in, you know, the, the injury that's being pled here. There's a, a mismatch. So even if the court has some concerns with that, it really doesn't affect the claims here. As, as you said, Judge Miller, a consumer would have to bring that claim, but the competitor can't under this court's and the Supreme Court's precedent. And, and, and on, on the so, question of injury, what's your answer to what I take to be Flaw's point, which is that you know, essentially it's all, it's all one policy. You know, so they have this, I mean, and I, I know you say they haven't alleged it specifically enough, but if we assume for a moment that they've alleged that there's a, a division of territories, a geographic division uh, of the market, uh, I think her theory is you know, in order for that to work, you have to limit the number of people in the organization. Um, and so it's sort of all one thing. We've divided up the world uh, geographically. And as part of that, we, we have to limit the number of people. And I'm injured by the limiting the number of people part of it. Uh, but since it's all, it's all really the same thing, um, that, that's uh, sufficient to allow me to challenge it. But what's your answer to that? I, I, I don't think it's true that in order for that to work, you'd have to limit the number of people. I mean, presumably that sort of scheme as it happened in Topco, uh, you know, can involve a lot of people who are default by default competitors. Um, and the whole point of something like that is to say, to divide up the market between people who are sort of the insiders. You can have a large number of insiders. So I think there's no real, there's no connection between that and what, what Flaw and what plaintiffs are really challenging, which is their exclusion from membership. I mean, if there was no market, alleged market division, it would have no effect whatsoever. Uh, on uh, on on plaintiffs, and again, they have to allege injuries that flow from the anti-competitive aspect. So, if their injuries just flow from the fact that there's an ordinary membership criteria, and that's the agreement they challenge. That's the predicate section one agreement. And again, it's up to plaintiffs to plead what the agreement is. That's the one that they really challenge, um, and they have to show the injuries flow from the anti-competitive aspects. So even if there was some concern about the market division having an anti-competitive aspect, the thing which is injuring them is that they're not members of the HFPA. And that even if there was no market division, no grievance procedure, any of that, it would have no effect on plaintiffs whatsoever. The treble damages that they want are presumably all going to be the economic losses and the fact that they're not insiders. They're not subject at all to the market division policy that uh, affects insiders. And I don't think you can bundle them together because the policies could easily work separately. And there's no sense in which they really do work together because, of course, individuals could be let in and then the markets could be divided up. And the two things you know, just don't rely on one another. Uh, so as to the, the sort of the membership policy, which is I think what they really challenge, as, as I think some of the questions have underscored, there's no example of a membership criteria of this kind being considered a group boycott or being considered a restraint that is a violation of the antitrust laws. And that I think automatically puts this outside of per se analysis, as Judge Miller pointed out, um, you have Northwestern Wholesale, which says that you need to establish both market power and an aspect essential to competition. And those are just things that clearly are not the case here. So once you're outside of the per se analysis, it becomes a question of the rule of reason. And under this court's precedent, there's an affirmative pleading requirement to first define the market, then to plead facts showing market power, and then to show anti-competitive effects or antitrust injury. And plaintiff's claims really fail at all of those steps here. They've defined their product market, I think, and this, you know, they're somewhat confusing as to how they define the product market, but I think probably the, the, 
the most charitable uh, way of defining it would be reporting on American motion picture industry. Um, and that's in 49 separate geographic markets. And so they then have to establish that the HFPA somehow has market power in each of those 49 different markets. And those markets have to be defined with respect to reasonably interchangeable economic substitutes. So it's not just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's basically anything where there's an audience for Hollywood reporting that includes domestically based journalists, that includes things like the Hollywood Reporter translated into German or Spanish or Norwegian, that includes things like the bloggers and the media, um, <clears throat> uh, sorry, the social media influencers that they mention. It is highly implausible, as the district court said, that the HFPA has market power in each of those 49 separate sub-markets. And more to the point, there are just no allegations in the complaint about market power at all. There's not a single allegation about the market share, not a single allegation about who the market participants are. These are all threshold pleading requirements that plaintiffs have to have. I think the closest they come is to suggest that, you know, the HFPA is somehow monopolizing each of those 49 markets because it's the only one, the only entity or the journalists have access to stars. But for a monopolization claim, this court has said that it's generally required to show a 65% market share to establish a prima facie case of market power. And you also have to show barriers to entry. I mean, there are absolutely no allegations in this complaint whatsoever that would permit uh, a fact finder to determine whether or not HFPA has that kind of market power. And of course, there are probably thousands of journalists in each of these foreign global markets for Hollywood film reporting. The idea that one you know, HFPA uh, journalist has market power is implausible, you know, feels implausible and in the very least needs to be backed up by some facts. And then they also have to show substantial anti-competitive effects. They don't show any, they have no allegations about effect on prices, no effect on uh, the output in the markets, no allegations about harm to consumers separate from the harm to the plaintiffs themselves. Basically, they just say, we were harmed uh, and we would be you know, great journalists that would produce better output if uh, we were able to get uh, access to more stars. That is just an injury to a competitor, not an injury to competition. So, I mean, and I think all of that is to basically say that that what this case is about is plaintiffs want a competitive advantage that members of the HFPA have, which is to be able to vote on the Golden Globes. But it's up to a plaintiff to provide a bridge between just saying, I want a competitive advantage to there is an antitrust problem here. The antitrust laws are not there to equalize all competitive advantages, just like the blogger and the social media influencer has a competitive advantage because they have lots of followers, just because a domestic German journalist may have a competitive advantage because it has affiliations and local networks with people. These are all competitive advantages. And the antitrust laws don't equalize all of those things because competitive advantages are actually the engine of innovation and the engine of competition. And so in a situation like this, a plaintiff can't just say, here's an advantage voting on the Golden Globes. If I had that advantage, I would be in a better position and my customers would be in a better position. That's, that's not what the antitrust laws are for. The antitrust laws are to stop improper uses of market power to restrain competition. That requires pleading all the things the plaintiffs just haven't pled in this case. Um, and then I'd very like to quickly address that we, we didn't hear very much about it from plaintiffs, but on the fair procedure doctrine, uh, you know, there are two threshold requirements in California law for the, for the fair procedure doctrine. The first is that, as the California Supreme Court said in Potvin, that the membership has to be a practical prerequisite to any effective practice. Um, that's clearly not the case in this here because plaintiffs have been successful members um, of, uh, you know, you know su successful uh, journalists for a number of years now. And so clearly it's not a, a practical prerequisite to be an HFPA member. Um, and also the institution has to be quasi-public in nature. 
And plaintiffs have not pled any allegations that put uh, the HFPA within the quasi-public bucket. That's things like the important products or services the enterprise provide, their representations to the public, legislative recognition. None of that is true for the HFPA. In fact, the only real public-facing thing that plaintiffs have alleged is that the HFPA hosts an award ceremony, and that makes them exactly like uh, you know, the MPA and the Producers Guild in Yari. Um, plaintiffs also say, well, they're a nonprofit, they're a tax-exempt organization. That was exactly true for the Producers Guild and the MPA in Yari as well. So I think Yari squarely forecloses the idea that an organization like the HFPA is quasi-public in nature. And I think, you know, those are two independent threshold reasons. So if the court thinks that either one of those is sufficient, that's enough to dismiss the fair procedure claim. All right, that's it. Thank uh, you, Ernest. I don't think we have any further questions. Thank you. All right, Thank uh, you, we'll give you, you got your one minute for rebuttal. Go ahead. Well, we've got to turn on your mic, though. Hold on. There you go. Thank you, um, Your Honor. Uh, several points. One is um, that my uh, that Mr. Degerson argued that uh, members could be let into the HFPA and markets still divided up. Uh, argued that those were separate concepts. They are not. Uh, no, at no time in history has the HFPA had a hundred members. Uh, it allowed in. Uh, a large influx of new members a few months ago in response to uh, the public outcry concerning its practices and uh, professional condemnation. And even with those admissions, it still has fewer than I. Um, further, uh, Mr. Degerson suggested that magazines uh, could be translated into various languages, uh, but that is an assumption that is factually incorrect uh, as set forth in the law declaration uh, supporting her request for leave to amend. Um, magazines do not uh, translate into other languages. A Danish magazine publishes in Danish, but it doesn't pick up an article from a Czech publication. Um, finally, uh, I would just point out that professors Arita and Hovenkamp, uh, in their antitrust treatise, wrote that injury is clear and seldom challenged when the plaintiff alleges that its rival engages in exclusionary practices designed to rid the market of the plaintiff to preclude its entry or raise its costs so that the defendant can maintain or create a monopoly. That is precisely what we're alleging here, uh, and the practice harms both consumers uh, and foreign publications uh, and results in, we believe, higher charges to foreign publications uh, because they have no other options to which to turn. All right. Thank you very much uh, to both of you for your argument today. This matter is submitted, and this panel is adjourned. Thank you. This court for this session stands adjourned.